Thank you for that technical assistance. Uh, Exodus, where are we? Exodus 14.10. As Pharaoh and his army approached, the people of Israel could see them in the distance, marching towards them. The people began to panic, and they cried out to the Lord for help. Then they turned to Moses and complained, Why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? Weren't there enough graves for us in Egypt? Why did you make us leave? Didn't, didn't we tell you to leave us alone while we were still in Egypt? Our Egyptian slavery was far better than dying out here in the wilderness. But Moses told the people, don't be afraid. Just stand where you are and watch the Lord rescue, rescue you. The Egyptians that you see today will never be seen again. The Lord himself will fight for you. You won't have to lift a finger in your defense. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the people to get moving. Use your shepherd's staff. Hold it out over the water and a path will open up before you through the sea. Then all the people of Israel will walk through on dry ground. Yet I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians and they will follow the Israelites into the sea. Then I will receive great glory at the expense of Pharaoh and his armies, chariots, and charioteers. When I am finished with the Pharaoh and his army, all, Jesus, all Egypt will know that I am the Lord. Then the angel of God, who had been leading the people of Israel, moved to a position behind them, and the pillar of cloud also moved behind them. The cloud settled between the Israelite and Egyptian camps. As night came, the pillar of cloud turned into a pillar of fire, lighting the Israelite camp. But the cloud became darkness to the Egyptians, and they couldn't find the Israelites. Then Moses raised his hand over the sea, and the Lord opened up a path through the water with a strong east wind. The wind blew all that night, turning the seabed into dry land. So the people of Israel walked through the sea on dry ground with walls of water on each side. Then the Egyptians, all of Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and charioteers, followed them across the bottom of the sea. But early in the morning, the Lord looked down on the Egyptian army from the pillar of fire and cloud, and he threw them into confusions. Their chariot wheels began to come off, making their chariots impossible to drive. Let's get out of here, the Egyptians shouted. The Lord is fighting for Israel against us. When the Israelites were on the other side, the Lord said to Moses, raise your hand over the sea again. Then the waters will rush back over the Egyptian chariots and char charioteers, charioteers. So as the sun began to rise, Moses raised his hand over the sea. The water rose back into its usual place and the Lord swept the terrified Egyptians into the surging currents. The waters covered all the chariots and charioteers and the entire army of Pharaoh. Of all the Egyptians who had chased the Israelites into the sea, not a single one survived. The people of Israel had walked through the middle of the sea on dry land and as the water stood up, like a wall on both sides. This was how the Lord rescued Israel from the Egyptians that day. And the Israelites could see the bodies of the Egyptians washed up on the shore. When the people of Israel saw the mighty power that the Lord had displayed against the Egyptians, they feared the Lord and put their faith in him and in their servant Moses. Let us pray. Lord God, thank you for our time together today. I pray for the Holy Spirit to be upon us, and I just pray for Brian as he speaks your word. I thank you for giving your only begotten son, Jesus, who has set a path before us out of slavery into freedom and eternal salvation with you. I just pray that when we have moments of doubt and faith, you forgive us, 
He draws closer to you, God, and even when we can't see the path that's set before us, you will speak to our hearts and stretch our faith and give us strength to move forward. Lord God, we just pray that uh, not to lean on our own understanding, but to trust in you with all our heart. And today, I just pray that you open our hearts and minds to hear the truth of your word. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. All God's people said, amen. All right. Good morning, everyone. I, th I think I'm on. I'm good. Okay. We are uh, we're starting a series um, we're continuing a series that we started last week on the Bible, and we're trying to understand the Bible. Um, my Bible has over 1,200 pages in it. It's a big, fat book with a lot of stuff in it, right? And so how do we make some sense out of a book, in fact, I would guarantee that most people have never read a book that's 1,200 pages long with this super small font, columns, and all this stuff about it. So uh, my job is to try to help us understand what this book is about as simply and as clearly as I can so that we can understand it. Last week, we said we need to start with what does Jesus say about the book? And Jesus says that it is true that it's everlasting, and that it will change your life. Jesus breaks the Bible up into different parts, and that's what we're going to do this morning. He breaks the Bible up into the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. And so the law, if you recall, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible are referred to as the Torah, Anyone remember what Torah means from last week? Really, instructions, right? The word, the word means instructions, that God wants to give instructions on how he wants us to live. So this morning, we are going to look at uh, probably one of the most recognizable stories of the Old Testament, the crossing of the Red Sea, all right? And here's just a really quick, 1956, the movie Ten Commandments, Who's the lead actor, the star? Charlton Heston. According to one web page, I have no idea if this is true or not, but if you adjust it for inflation, number seven on all time, I think it was over $2 billion of profit if you were to adjust it for inflation. That's how much money uh, this movie made. It was created in 1956. 2014, the movie that I have not seen, Exodus, Gods and Kings. It's a well-known story. In fact, one of my favorites, Bob Marley, said this. Send us another brother Moses from across the Red Sea. Come break down the oppression, rule inequality, wipe away the transgressions, and set the captives free. Right? The part we all recognize, set the captives free. Maybe one of the most famous or recognized reggae songs um, ever written. And so this story is something that many of us have heard of, connected with, and understand. And so we want to understand this story, this recognizable story, and how it fits into the context of the whole Bible. And one of the things that you'll recognize really early is that 
This story is really important throughout the whole Bible, over and over and over again. Throughout the Old Testament, it's alluded to. In fact, even in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, talking about Jesus, Matthew writes this, Out of Egypt I will call my son. That's referring back to the Exodus story. And even a more clear reference is in Luke chapter 9. It's referred to as the transfiguration. So the Gospels of Jesus, Jesus tells the story about, or Luke writes the story about when Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on top of the mountain, and it says this, Luke chapter 9. And he was praying, Jesus was praying, and the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, and two appeared in glory and spoke of his departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. What's important here is that the word departure in Greek is the word exodus. It's a direct reference to the story back in Exodus 14 that Jesus is on his way to the cross to give people freedom. There are other places, and we'll talk about them more, but there is a consistent theme throughout the Bible that's directly related to Exodus chapter 14 and the Red Sea crossing. And so there's three things we can learn from this passage that we'll, we'll, we'll identify. Number one is that there are always things in this world that will want to control you. There, are all, there will always be things that will want to claim ownership over your life. There will always be things that will want to dictate how you live your life. Number two, we learn about the principle of grace and how even in the Old Testament, this idea, the theme of grace is consistent throughout the whole Bible. And then last, why does this grace appear to us? Why is the grace given to us? So number one, we learn that there will always be things that want to control us in our lives. So if you look back, and, and I'll just allude to it or speak of it, in Exodus chapter one, at the very beginning, it tells the story of how the Jewish people end up as slaves in Egypt. And it uses words like ruthless and harsh treatment. In fact, later on in chapter one, it talks about the famous story, if you've seen any of the movies, the murder of children, of the sons. And that's the story of Moses and how he begins his role in all of this. But we learn very clearly that the Egyptians claim ownership over the Jewish people, that they control them, that they will dictate how they live. I was just doing this this morning. My two, uh, like I'm, I'm hitting something. There we go. <laughs> the truth is, is that even today, that there are things that will want to control us. If you look back, just for one second, turn a few pages in your Bible. Hope you're right. So one encouragement is that uh, everyone brings their Bibles as we learn about the Bible, help us understand this a little bit more. Here's what it says, chapter 1, verse 8. Now there arose a new king in Egypt. Verse 11 of chapter 1. Therefore set taskmasters over them. That means control. Taskmasters over To do what? to afflict them with heavy burdens. 
So the Jewish people, part of their identity, their history, is that they were slaves in Egypt. And so the application for us to think about this, and I'm just I'm making a quick jump from historical to today, is to think about what are the things that control us. John chapter 8, Jesus says this, that everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And so Jesus is making this really distinct dichotomy that, slave, that sin has the power to control us. Sin has the power to dictate how we live our lives. And so it's worth it for us just to pause, to help us understand the Bible for a moment, is what are the things that might be controlling your life today? And there are all kinds of things. And we, if we just think about this just for a moment, and I'll start, we'll start with this. Many of us are easily controlled by what people think about us. We can say things like, I understand what the Bible says, or I understand the gospel, and it's in our head. But in our heart, more than anything else in the world, we care what people think about us. And that controls you. That controls your emotions, that controls the decisions you make, that controls how you live your life. The idea of being outside, not being in, the idea of being laughed at, the idea of being mocked, right? If you just think about this for a second, this is, uh, I think this, this is especially true in, uh, in during your teenage years, but I think it carries on throughout our lives. If you're with a group and you step away for a moment from the group, and the group looks up at you and starts laughing and looks back down and looks at you again, and they start laughing at you. You're like, what? Right? You immediately start thinking about what's wrong with me, what's happening, why are they laughing at me? On a surface level, we understand that no one wants to be laughed at. Deep inside, that's real. That's a part of who we are. Many years ago, um, on my eighth grade DC trip to uh, New York and DC, it was a particularly hot day. And um, like a normal guy, I, I packed the night before, just threw all my clothes in a bag, and, and I didn't have any shorts. And so I'm in New York City, like uh, Fifth Avenue or Soho or something like that. And I, I like I just I need to buy a pair of shorts. So I, I go to the store, shorts, fine. I'm going to buy them. And I go to put them on, and I put on these shorts, and I, I find out that they like come to my calf. <laughs> and I think, I think they call them like capris or something. I'm not sure. But all I know for me, like I'm not a capri guy. Like I put them on, and I'm like, what am I wearing? Right? And I walk outside, and I show uh, my boss, her name's Marty. I step out, and she just starts laughing at me. <laughs> This was, uh, th this was uh, when, R I think, Rafael Nadal, I think, uh, the tennis player, like, wore capris while he played tennis, so she called me Nadal. But the point is, if, now listen, if, you, uh, if you're into capris and you're a guy, then that's, that's really cool, but I just can't imagine, <laughs> I can't imagine Matt Rapp surfing, going down the line in his capris, right? I just can't, I can't imagine that, right? So uh, there are a few guys here that can pull off the capris, but I'm not one of them. The point is, if we're willing to think for just a moment and think about the power that what people think about you has in your life, 
has tremendous power. In fact, it controls some of us this morning more than we're willing to admit. Our past, what has happened to you in your past can have control over you. The wounds of life, the challenges of life, the struggles of life can have control over us. It can be very difficult. Again, you can say, I'm a Christian and all things are new in Christ. And maybe you can, if, you're, uh, if you've been around church long enough, you can quote the right Bible verses. But the reality is that you're living by your past. That your past has formed your identity. You can't break free. And the key word is this. The key word is taskmaster. That it won't let you go that it will not let you go, that it is who you are. We can be controlled by what other people think about us. We can be controlled by our past. We can be controlled by cultural narratives. Whatever is valued in the culture today, that's what affects your life. A couple years ago, and I don't mean this to be unnecessarily offensive, but a couple years ago, uh, I had a young guy in his 20s, and he was struggling with uh, sexuality. And he said to me, he said, I think I, I just have a sex demon in me, and I just want to have sex all the time. And I said, well, I said, that's, that's probably not true. I said, what's probably true is that you're living your life controlled by your desires that you're living your life according to cultural narratives that say whatever you feel like doing, you just do. Cultural narrative says this, keep yourself happy. It's about you. It's about chasing your own personal happiness. Cultural narrative says, keep yourself safe. Find a way to make yourself happy. Isolate yourself. Do whatever is necessary. What is controlling you? Is fear controlling you? Is that what has ownership over your life? It's really interesting. This, this is significant for us. If you look in your Bible, and we'll see that that is exactly what's controlling the Hebrew people at this time. In Exodus chapter 14, it says that they complain to Moses and they say, it's better for us to go back to Egypt. Or... Why did you take us out here to die? Listen, when, life, when your life is controlled by fear, by default, you always limit your options. And that Jewish people this time, they're terrified. And they think, I'm going to solve this problem my way. And there's only two options. And God, you know what? God might be saying to you, there's other options. When your life is controlled by fear, there might be other options. There might be another way that I'm going to solve this problem. There are many ways that this world controls us. I believe this to be true, that we will not grow, we will not change, we will not grow from the inside until you understand that sin will always want to control you, that sin will always want to be your taskmaster, 
in Genesis chapter 3, it says this, that sin is crouching low and waiting to pounce on you, waiting to gain control of you. It's a profound aspect of a theme throughout the Bible that sin is always looking to control you. It's always seeking you out, looking for ways to control your life, looking for ways to gain ownership over your life. How do we deal with this? The Bible says that we deal with this through prayer, that you are honest with yourself about the power that sin has over you, that you are honest about what's actually controlling your life. And I honestly believe that one of the most powerful things in our lives today is what do people think about us? If somebody snubs you or shuns you, does it do more than just hurt your feelings? Does it ruin your day? Does it destroy you? There are things you can do to ask about what is actually controlling you. We need prayer. We need accountability. And here's what I mean by accountability. We need people in our lives. We need to be a church that says this that says that Jesus Christ is the most beautiful thing in the universe, that he became hideous, and he took what we deserved so that we might become beautiful and holy and spotless without blemish in him. That's Isaiah 52. We need to be a place that understands Romans chapter 8, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We understand the way that God sees you because of what Jesus Christ has done. Hold ourselves accountable to the truth that God sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The principle is this, that sin will always want to control you as a taskmaster. And how do we solve this problem? This is so amazing and so crystal clear. Look at the grace principle that appears. So uh, Exodus chapter 13, 14, verse 13 says this, and here is the grace principle to this thing that wants to control you. Here's what Moses says. And Moses says to the people, Fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of your Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. For the Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. Three commands. Fear not, stand firm, and be silent. And watch the salvation that God will do for you today. The principle of grace is evident, even throughout the Old Testament. And that is my point, to show you the consistent theme throughout the Bible. To be still, to be silent to know that God is working in you. This is, look, let me show you in the New Testament, the New Testament version of this exact same verse. This is Romans chapter 4, verse 5. And to the one who does not work, but who believes in Jesus, whom justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Listen, I'll tell you this. Whenever you're pressed, it's our human nature. We're going to want to work. We're going to want to fight. We're going to want to solve the problems. And Jesus, or in Exodus chapter 14, Moses says this, Fear not, stand firm, and be silent. And God 
will rescue you. God will do the fighting for you. God will take care of this problem. We were reading this last night as a family, and um, don't move, fear not, stand firm, be silent. And I asked one of my boys, be silent. I'm like, I'm like Finn, what are the three principles here? No response. Finn, what are the principles here? No response. He falls asleep. <laughs> so he falls asleep on uh, principle number three, be silent, right? So he was following those very well. <laughs> the point is this, is that the need of the rescue is so great that we cannot free ourselves, that we need to be rescued by the grace of God. It's a powerful principle. It goes completely counterintuitive to what we think. Right? The idea to be silent and God is going to rescue. God will work out the salvation. Well, how does this grace principle operate today? How does it work itself out? You have to step out in faith. You have to cross over to the other side. You have to be able to see the picture here. The Israelites are on one side. The Egyptians are coming. There's a lake in front of them. There's a sea in front of them. And they feel like there's nothing they can do. And God says, be still. And let me give you the grace. Let me, let me do this for you. What's behind is death. And what's ahead is life. And this is the exact same picture in the New Testament of what it means to be a Christian. Behind us is enslavement to sin, and ahead of us is new life in Christ. And I want to show you the consistent theme throughout the Bible that grace of Jesus Christ is what rescues us. And our human nature, the human nature will always do what? to build a bridge, that we're going to work and solve this problem. We're going to dig pylons, and we're going to put something deep in the ground, and we're going to stretch out and work a little bit more, and we're going to keep building and working and working to earn your acceptance by God. And that is never found in the Bible. The battle has been accomplished. Jesus Christ has conquered death. We want to turn Christianity into a checklist. And I want to show you that throughout the whole Bible, the theme is this, that God is working out salvation. That sin will always be seeking to claim ownership over you, but the battle belongs to the Lord. Sin is pursuing us, but Jesus has defeated it. Let's finish up with this. Why did the Egyptians die? This is really interesting for a second. Why do the Egyptians die and the Israelites live? All right, and I want to just think about this for a second. Most of us, our, our thoughts go like this. Egyptians are the bad guys and the Hebrews were the good guys. Bad guys die, good guys live. Right? And that's just not true. All right? Listen, here's how this works. This is humanity. Humanity is this. At its worst, whoever has the most money oppresses those who have less. Whoever has the biggest and most guns, if you think about this on a national, international scale, whoever has the biggest guns controls the people who don't. Retaliation. 1990s Rwanda, where there was mass genocide, where one people at one particular time has all the power 
and we're going to afflict pain. And then as soon as the power switches, what do they say? Oh, brothers, we forgive you. We love you. No, they say retaliate. And so we need to be very careful, and I won't take the time this morning, but there are places all throughout the beginning part of Exodus where the Jewish people were complaining and saying all these negative things and doing these things. And if you look honestly and objectively, the Egyptians did some really bad things and the Jewish people did some really bad things. In fact, they are known throughout this time as just complainers. And so we have to ask, how, why does this grace principle operate? Why does it operate in your life today? Why, why do you get the grace and not somebody else? Why are the Egyptians not allowed to live, but the Jewish people are allowed to live? It's a significant question, and the answer is this, is they had a mediator, and the mediator was Moses. Chapter 14, verse 15 says this, The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Moses is a unique man, but all throughout his life and through the history of this time period, it goes God, the Jewish people, the Hebrews, and then Moses as the mediator between the two. And that points exactly forward to the New Testament, to a better Moses. The better Moses is Jesus as the mediator between God and people. This theme runs to consistently throughout the whole Bible that sinful people need a mediator, that need access to God. And what happens is culturally, we're, we just always dumb down and minimize the holiness of God. We want to make it just casual and easy. And the Bible never portrays God as that way. It portrays people in a desperate need for a mediator, someone to come before God on our behalf. And that's what Jesus Christ does. 1 Timothy chapter 2 says this, that there is one God and one mediator between God and man. And the mediator, the better Moses, will lead you to freedom. The better Moses, Jesus, will set you free. Here's one way to think about it. Here's one way to think about how Christianity is unique from other religions. It's just different. All other religions would say something like this, that I have a prophet, that I'm a prophet, and I want to show you to God. Okay, so it's a person who comes and says, I want to point you to where God is. And Christianity says this, that the prophet claims to be God, and the prophet is looking for you. The prophet God is seeking you out. It's very different. The prophet is seeking you out to give you his grace, that he is pursuing you to rescue you. The consistent theme throughout the Bible is that sin will always want to control your life, that something right now is looking to control your life. And it means that we are in desperate need for grace. And that's what Exodus chapter 14 teaches us, that we are to be still and be silent, that God is working out the salvation. And it's a picture of this. It's a picture of God offering salvation, of rescuing his people. We need to understand, and I'll finish with this, we need to understand it in this sense. The passage is not to be taken in the sense of 
when I'm having problems in my life, when I'm having an Exodus-type situation in my life, that I, I need to call, pray on God, that he'll come rescue me and deliver me from this problem of my life. That's what the temptation is, to think of this story as a way to say, God, just come, I'm having pressures. On this side is a marriage problem. On this side is a work problem. I need help. And we turn the passage, we turn the Bible into solving your personal problems. And I, what, what I want to say is that it's so much more than that. It so much more exceeds that. That that is not the point of the story. The point of the story is something like this. You're diagnosed with cancer, and you've got weeks to live, and the doctor calls you at night and says, by some miraculous reason, the latest tests show that you're cancer-free. You're going to live. And during the middle of the night, your little baby daughter starts calling your name, and you wake up, and on the way, you stub your toe. And you kick something, and it hurts. But in comparison to the news that you've been set free from the death sentence of cancer, the stubbing of the toe means nothing. It's irrelevant. And the passage of the story is this, the point of this is this, that God is offering you salvation today. And that in comparison to all the problems we have in our lives, it's but a stubbed toe compared to the salvation that God is offering you. It's not a recipe where we can just say, I want to claim this for this. There's bigger problems in our lives. And it's our relationship with Jesus Christ. And every problem you will have in comparison to that is insignificant. It's a stubbed toe. When you, listen, when you can live your life with this, that there is no condemnation in Jesus Christ. When your mind believes that, when your heart believes that, when the affections of your heart are that you are seen with the righteousness of Christ, you will have peace, you'll have contentment, you'll have joy, you'll have these eternal things that the world will never take away. But I promise you this, you will have problems in this world. Jesus says that very clearly. You will have problems in this world. You'll have tribulation. But those problems are but a flea bite in comparison to the problem that has been resolved. The greatest problem that needs resolution is we're all deeply flawed people and that we're broken and separated from God because of that. And the solution has already been achieved. That is past. Are we living it today? And if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, are you living with that joy? What is controlling your life? If you are set free, if there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus, Jesus says this in the Gospels, that we are safe in the hands of the Father, that no man can take you out of the hands of Christ. Are you living with that joy? Or is the task, <clears throat> the taskmaster of Egypt pulling you back? Are there things in this world that are controlling you, that are stealing your joy? 
Are there things like the cultural narrative of the day controlling your life more than Jesus Christ? The battle has been won. Everything that we need to live a life of joy and peace has been accomplished by what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. Let's make it our prayer as a community of believers and for people who are still searching and thinking about Christianity, if it's legitimate or real, I just invite you to think about what's controlling your life. And do you have real peace? Do you have real joy? Can you honestly before God say that with you in control of your life, is it a life of peace, of joy? Salvation has been won. The battle has been accomplished by what Jesus Christ has done. And he offers you and extends his hand of grace and mercy to you this morning. Let's pray. Father, I I thank you for the consistency of your Bible, of your word. And Father, I pray that if there are people here this morning that, that see your word as just this really big book of confusing things, that more than anything else, they would see the theme that runs all throughout it, that Jesus Christ loves sinners, that, lit, that loves flawed and hurting people, and that we all are in desperate need of your grace. Father, I pray that, that if there's anyone here this morning that is exhausted by trying to be good, by trying to work and earn it, that they would lay it down and receive the free grace that is available today. If there's anyone here that's feeling pulled back, that their lives are controlled by other things, that they would see that Jesus wants to bring them home to a safe place, that they would experience your grace this morning. We love you and we thank you for your word, Jesus. Amen.